And I'm excited to be able to preach the text that I'm preaching this morning, to be able to focus our attention on the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. But some people might find it ironic that this year, as we contemplate Jesus' resurrection, that we're celebrating his resurrection on April 1st. That we have April Fool's Day. Because some people believe that this is just a foolish thing to believe in. Who would believe that someone would raise from the dead? Now, there are some people that believe it's foolish to believe in a literal physical resurrection, but they still think, yeah, but there is something special about Jesus. But we just don't believe in a literal resurrection. I came across a couple of quotes I want to share with you. One comes from a former Episcopalian bishop, but he said this, Resurrection is an action of God. Jesus was raised into the meaning of God. It therefore cannot be a physical resuscitation occurring inside of human history. Or another quote I came across on Oprah's website. (laughs) Why why, why, why are you laughing? Um, The term resurrection means the energy pattern of love which transcends fear by replacing it. A miracle worker's function is forgiveness. In performing our function, we become channels of resurrection. Now, these would be individuals who would want to recognize there was something about Jesus, but we can't believe everything that the Bible says, especially not a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, some people will go further, and they'll just say, no, we don't believe Jesus whatsoever. Some people will argue back saying something like, Jesus and his resurrection story mirrors ancient resurrection accounts. There are other mythologies where people kind of rose from the dead. So what's so different about Jesus and his resurrection? They just treat it and lump it all together with the other mythologies. But what those individuals fail to recognize is how people viewed resurrection, even from a first century mindset. The Greeks, when they thought of resurrection, they thought a freedom from the flesh. To be in the spirit was ultimate freedom. And so they would never think of a resurrection as a physical resurrection. The Jewish people, many of them, believed in resurrection as well. But when they thought of resurrection, they believed that the resurrection would take place when the Messiah would rise, but not just the Messiah by himself. He would rise with all the people that he came to rescue. So they would believe in a physical resurrection, but not a physical resurrection of one person. That would seem absurd. One theologian and scholar who's current in our day has done a lot of study on the resurrection and on the ancients' view of the resurrection. His name is N.T. Wright, and he wrote this. And actually, I need to define this first. He, he talks about other messiahs, other people who purported to be the messiah and their followers. And he wants to see what did they do when that messiah was put to death or that messiah figure was thwarted. He says, in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. 
Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options. Give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option unless, of course, he was. Unless, of course, he was. That is a very important statement. Nobody would have come up with this in the first century mindset unless it actually happened. It would have been hard to believe for anyone in the first century to understand this message. And yet, we have people proclaiming it. And people throughout generations proclaiming it so much so that today we have thousands, millions of people around the globe today worshiping God and celebrating that Jesus rose from the dead. How is it that we can have people take such opposing stances on the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Just to give you a couple other quotes of of people who affirm the resurrection. One uh, man, Thomas Arnold, who's a professor at Oxford, said, No one fact in the history of mankind is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the fact that Christ died and rose from the dead. A Yale professor said, in the whole story of Jesus Christ, the most important event is the resurrection. And John Locke once said, our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity. So great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it. So how can you have someone like Thomas Arnold saying that there's not one fact in in history that is proved better than the resurrection. And then you have a liberal Episcopalian bishop saying, certainly cannot be physical. I think when we hear these types of responses and the contrast between them, that should actually cause us to think more deeply about what we believe and why we believe it. Asking ourselves, is this really true? Is, is this fact or fiction? I want us to go on a quest this morning and see two things. Ask ourselves this. How can we be assured that Jesus is risen? And why is the resurrection so important? How can we be assured? And why is it so important? So this sermon is for people all across the spectrum. You have, this sermon is for people who are skeptics. No, I don't believe it. This sermon is for people who are dealing with doubts. You may be a believer, but you're struggling with belief. This sermon is for people who believe and you're strong in your beliefs, but we know we're all called to grow in faith. So the sermon is for everyone to go on a quest to discover how can we grow in our assurance that this really happened? And then why is it so important? Meaning what are the effects of the resurrection? If it is true, which it is, What are the effects in the life of those who trust and believe in Christ? So we start with, how can we be sure of this? Now, there are many answers that I can give, and I'm not able to get into all of those this morning. I'm giving you a few. Maybe sometime in the future, I'll do a series on this. But today, I'm just going to give you three. And the first one would be, the Gospels are written historically. And I think I could have worded that a little bit better But hopefully in my explanation, you'll understand what I mean. There's different types of genres of writing. And we have to understand that. There's there's poetry, there's allegory, um, there's history. And depending on what type of 
writing it is, we interpret that writing based on the the way it's written. What we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all written in a historical way. Which means at least the authors think that this is history. When we read about Jesus' birth, we read about Herod, a real man in real time. When we read about Jesus' crucifixion, we read about a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. The early church always believed that Jesus was a historical figure, literally living in the flesh on this earth. That's why even if you look at the Apostles' Creed, if you've seen that before, it'll say, crucified under Pontius Pilate. Why do they add Pontius Pilate? Because it's real. It really happened in real time. The church believed this, that the death of Jesus is a historical fact, not just some mythology like Hercules or some fairy tale like a bunny that lays eggs. So with that in mind, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark 16. And I want to read verses 1 through 8 for us here, but before we do, I want to pray. Father, we need your wisdom. We need your spirit to open our eyes to grow in our understanding and our belief and our resolve and our zeal for who Christ is and what he has done. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that you communicate to us perfectly in your word. And so I pray that we would submit to it. I pray we'd grow in it. I pray we'd rejoice in you. Give me the words to say and the passion with which to say it. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So I'm focusing here in Mark, but I want to bring in a couple of other details from the other gospel writers as it relates to this resurrection story. You have this situation where there are women who are going to anoint Jesus' body with spices and probably doing that so that his body doesn't stink worse. On their way, they're discussing how they're going to roll the stone away from the tomb. Now, the tomb wasn't Jesus's. It was the tomb of a very wealthy man. And it was a unique kind of tomb. It was a tomb in which you could actually have a stone rolled up and placed in front of the opening and entryway. While the stone could be rolled on a slant, it would have been hard to move. That's why the women are discussing as they're on their way, how are we going to move this tomb? It also seems as though they don't know that there are guards 
in, in front of this tomb. As they walk to the place, an earthquake shakes the ground, sends the guards to the ground, causing then the stone to roll away. And we also find that the women are alarmed too. But they're alarmed not just because of the earthquake, they're alarmed because you have these two angels that show up bright and shining in their presence. That's enough to scare anybody. And yet, the angel speaks out the following, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Now, what I want you to notice in this phrase is the historical fashion in which the angel speaks. The angel first says, Jesus of Nazareth. You're looking for the Jesus with whom you walked and talked. Not just some Jesus. You're looking for Jesus who lived in the town of Nazareth, a real place in a real land. And the angel goes on to affirm the Jesus of Nazareth, the one who died. That's the one you're looking for. The gospel's testimony is that a real historical Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified. And then the angel goes on and says, he's not here. Why? Because he's risen. Listen, for people who say that the resurrection was not physical and literal, the gospel accounts won't let them take that interpretation. I mean, you can believe that viewpoint, but if you do, you deny what the scriptures clearly say. The angel doesn't merely say Jesus' body isn't here, though. What's interesting is that the angel says, see the place where they laid him. And I think, in part, some of the emphasis here is we have eyewitness testimony to the tomb being empty. Go look and see. So the angel tells the women to look, and then he says, but go and tell the disciples and Peter to meet Jesus in Galilee. Jesus had already told them that before, but it's a reminder, go to Galilee. So the women do this, and Jesus appears not only to the disciples, but he appears to many people over the course of 40 days before he ascends up into heaven. Now, some of you in this room may not question that whatsoever. You believe all that's there. Others of you might have a hard time accepting that that actually took place. Now, I would hope that you would accept these truths. But I I do want to say I also hope that you wouldn't simply accept these truths blindly. And what I mean by that is that sometimes when Christians talk to other people about the resurrection, they might say, well, you just got to take it on faith. And when they say take it on faith, it's as if they're saying, uh, take it even though it, 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 it goes against everything. It goes against all rational thought. So just take it on faith that it's true. Granted, there are many things in the scriptures we don't understand, right? Okay. But the Christian message is set apart from other religions in that in these big things like a resurrection, God makes these events even verifiable to strengthen our faith. Christianity is set apart from other types of religions. Like, for example, if you take Mormonism, where it starts with a man supposedly going off by himself to receive a message and then he comes back and he says, God told me this. Or similarly with Islam and Muhammad goes out and he hears this message and he's supposed to share it with other people, but he alone is the one that gets it. That's not what happened with the resurrection. 
The resurrection, many people saw, many people could affirm. Jesus didn't die in some dark corner of the earth. He didn't raise in some dark corner of the earth. Many people could verify this. It was historical. It was actual. And that's why even the Apostle John, when he writes his book to people towards the end, In John 20, verse 31, he says, These are written. The reason why I have written to you is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'm writing to you so that you can hear the story, discover the story, hear what actually happened, and then maybe, maybe God would open your eyes and that you would find Jesus glorious and that you would trust in him as the only sufficient Savior and Master over all. That's why I'm writing. The apostles were convinced it was true, and they wanted the readers to be convinced it was true as well, and trust in Christ. That actually leads me into the second point. How can we be sure? Well, we have, it's written historically. It really happened in public. But I've already alluded to this. The literal physical resurrection of Jesus is confirmed by eyewitnesses, and I I want to push into this a little bit more. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. The problem of people ignoring the resurrection isn't just a 21st century issue. It's gone on for centuries. And even in the first century with the church in Corinth, there seems to be that there was a a religious group that was coming in and they were proclaiming a false gospel, denying the resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, stating to them that the resurrection had to have happened. And 1 Corinthians 15 is his large treatise on why the resurrection is so important. But I want to read just verses 3 through 8 to start off. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul starts off his argument for the resurrection in the same way that the gospel writers speak of Jesus' life and resurrection. They write historically because it's historical. And Paul writes as though it's historical because it is historical. He says the good news of the human race is found in what Jesus has actually done. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. And then Paul speaks of these things by affirming them and saying there's verifiable evidence of this. You have Peter, you have the 12 disciples, you have 500 people, the apostles, and even he saw the resurrected Jesus. This really should be sufficient evidence for anyone. And even especially in Paul's day, as what I said earlier, many people wouldn't have believed this kind of message. And so what does God do? He gives witnesses to this to help people to believe. It's kind of like the scenario with Thomas, and he doubts, and we give Thomas a really hard time for doubting. But he says, unless I see 
The scars. I won't believe. And you know what? God could have just said, well, fine then. I guess you're not going to believe. God doesn't do that. Jesus comes and says, look, here are my scars. And similarly, even for us, while we don't see the scars today, we have evidences 500 people plus saw the resurrected Jesus. Essentially, what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church is when he says some have fallen asleep, he's saying to them, do your due diligence. If you're, if you're struggling to believe this, get on a boat and go to Jerusalem. Talk to the people. Most of them are still alive. Confirm this. You know, in our government, we have a phrase that goes innocent until proven guilty. And then we have court proceedings. If someone has done something wrong and they try to evaluate whether or not the person actually did it. But one of the greatest testimonies in court is an eyewitness account. Sometimes, in some cases, you just have one eyewitness. And that can lead to the justice and judgment of that criminal. That can convict the criminal. One one eyewitness. Now, of course, we don't want false witnesses. And so you have to evaluate the character of the people who are giving the testimonies, right? Are, are they going to get anything out of this? Are they going to gain something from this? Or, or will they lose something from sharing this testimony? And if they lose something from sharing this testimony, that's even, that's even more a reason to believe what they're saying because it's a dangerous thing for them. What's sad to me is that many people read a passage like this and they'll still ignore Jesus. They'll say something like, well, if 500 people saw him, why don't more people believe him today? And sometimes I wonder if, the reason, if one of the reasons why people don't believe him is because they still listen to that kind of argument. They listen to the people who don't believe and they say, well, if you don't believe, it must be okay to not believe. Instead of actually listening to the eyewitnesses who said, we saw him and we're not crazy. And it wasn't just me. It wasn't just a hallucination. How could we all have hallucinations that are identical? We saw him. And so we have 500 plus eyewitnesses affirming Jesus rose from the dead. And I think that should call us to listen to those people. Look at the people who believed on Jesus. Look at the character witnesses, so to speak. Go back to Mark 16. And just focusing in on one verse. If you look at verse 7, you have the angel speaking to the women, saying, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. Have you ever found it interesting or intriguing why the angel would name Peter specifically? Why does it say the disciples and Peter? Peter's a disciple, isn't he? Why is he focusing on Peter? Well, I think most of you know. But when they were sitting at the meal, Jesus prophesied that Peter was going to deny Jesus. And not just once, but deny him three times. And Peter did it. 
denied the Savior three times. I swear I don't know this man. And then after that denial, we do not read of Peter in the in-between time. What happened after the denial to when Jesus rose? But what we do hear is the angel saying, make sure Peter hears this. I can imagine that Peter was immensely weighed down after he denied. I can imagine that Peter is being reminded of the words that Jesus even taught his disciples when they were walking with Jesus on the earth, where Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. I can imagine Peter is feeling hopeless. Jesus raises from the dead, and there's some semblance of hope in Peter. He's one of the disciples that runs to the tomb and runs in to see that Jesus isn't there. But still, there's an aspect of despair in Peter. Because when you get to the book of John, within chapter 21, Peter's gone back to fishing. What use is there of me? So he goes back to fishing and Jesus shows up on the shore and the disciples see Jesus and they run back to the sand and they're sitting there and they're eating with Jesus and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, do you love me? piercing question. And Jesus didn't just ask it once. How many times? Three times. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Every time, what's amazing to me is that Peter affirms, yes, I love you. He even says, you know, you know I do. Even though he betrayed, even though he denied, yes, I love you. And what Jesus does in that moment is he he communicates to Peter a salvation that is entirely dependent on him. Yes, you denied, but I will never deny you. You're mine. Essentially, what Jesus does in that moment is he restates to Peter Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Get up. There's a ministry for you. But in that same scenario, Jesus prophesies what's going to be the end of Peter's life. How he is going to die. And it kind of seems odd in terms of its placement. But what's interesting or should draw us into this is the reality that the disciples knew that if they trusted Jesus, they're going to die for him. To believe this message was going to lead to their earthly demise. They knew this before it happened. And it wasn't only Peter that it was going to happen happen to, but it was all the disciples. All the disciples died Because they believed on Jesus. All except, well, they they were all tortured. All except for one. But at the same time, John was tortured before being exiled. Having been boiled in water 
and then sent to the island of Patmos. I agree with Blaise Pascal, who once said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. I think Pascal is saying something that I I believe Jesus is at least alluding to. Because of Jesus' resurrection, the disciples are going to be changed from weak, cowering, fearful, uncommitted people to bold, emblazoned, God-fearing, miracle-working slaves of Christ. Most of them die for this message. It's a great testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. In just a few weeks, their demeanors are changed. Read the Gospels. Read the Gospels and compare. And then read Acts and see these people. What happened in their lives? Peter's and the other men. That, that, that then Peter even leaves his homeland and we find him at the end of his life in the city of Rome with the Apostle Paul under Neronian persecution, and at least as the story goes, his arms are spread out, crucified. But he said, just don't let me die like my Savior. I'm not worthy. And so they crucified him upside down. The knowledge of Jesus' resurrection, seeing the resurrected Lord, shaped everything for them. So much so that the apostles would say, or the apostle Paul would say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. (laughs) If you have that motto for your life, you're unstoppable. People might want to shut you up and they say, well, then we're just going to kill you. And you say, well, to die is gain. All right, we're going to let you live then. To live is Christ. (laughs) Jesus is everything. He is our hope. He is our assurance. He is our joy. And so these disciples move forward knowing they're going to die. Because it's true. They knew it could sound unbelievable. The natural mind wouldn't have projected this. But God gave the eyewitnesses and God changed their lives because of it. Now we can look at them and we can see what happened to them. But I do want to probe just for a couple minutes So why is this so important? What are the effects of the resurrection of Jesus? If it is true, which I believe it is. Well, I would say without the resurrection, our faith is vain. Go back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to camp out there for the next few minutes. See, some people in this world might say to us, you know, you're putting a lot of stock in the resurrection. Don't you just want to play it safe? I mean, I've heard people who claim to be Christians who say, if we found the bones of Jesus, that would not affect my faith at all. And I say, if we find the bones of Jesus, I'm done. Because the Bible says that the resurrection is literal, is historical, that Jesus really did in the flesh raise from the dead. I agree with John Locke that says that the resurrection is so important that Jesus being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it. If he did not raise from the dead, I'm done. I'm done. This is the assertion that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 
We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul states in bullet points the necessity of the resurrection, why it's so important that we believe that we're going to be raised from the dead. And he he says our resurrection is linked and tied to Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, then there is no resurrection whatsoever. If we don't raise from the dead, then Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we won't be raised from the dead. Because Jesus, the scriptures say, is the firstborn from the dead. It's because of him that we will one day be with the Lord. How do we have assurance of being with the Lord if Jesus isn't with the Father now? Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus communicates with his disciples that where he goes, we go. So if Jesus is in the grave, that's all we have to look forward to if we trust in him. Now Paul goes on and he says, then the scriptures are lying. If there's no resurrection, then it makes sense why Paul would say God would be found as a false witness. God would be a liar if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. But I'm telling you, the resurrection of Jesus even bolsters our confidence in this, in the Bible. Jesus really rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then I have to believe all of this. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, I don't need it at all. The scriptures are lying if there's no resurrection. But if there is a resurrection, we have great reason to trust and hope. The next thing, and which is already a point that I made, but our faith is empty. Our faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, there's no substance to it. Follow Paul's logic. To believe in a dead Savior means to possess a dead faith. You know, I can recall different occasions on Easter where I would talk to my dad and he would say something like this. Guess what? I've been to Israel. I've been to the tomb. There's no body there. That is important for us to note because there are many religious leaders in history past that their bodies are enshrined in tombs and people know the bodies are there and were placed in those tombs and yet people go to celebrate and worship at the tombs of dead people but there is no body in Jesus's tomb none and so our faith is not in vain by the way just another side note in terms of evidence Even the enemies of Jesus affirm that there's no body in the tomb. Now, they make up a different story, but as in any court system, if an enemy affirms something, then we receive it as true. Jesus' body isn't there, and Paul presses it and says, not only is his body not there, he rose from the dead. It's factual, it's life-altering. Now Paul goes on and says, well, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we're still in our sins. 
Some people could say, well, why is our faith in vain by simply not believing the resurrection? And Paul's response is, we're still in our sins. In other words, the cross of Jesus Christ, that work that he accomplished on the cross really didn't happen if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Jesus said that he was going to take the place for sinners. Jesus said that he was going to take the wrath that sinners deserved. And even on the cross before he died, he said it is finished. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it is not finished. It wasn't even begun. Jesus is not the Messiah if, if he did not raise from the dead. There is no forgiveness of sins for you. You're still in your guilt and shame. But if Jesus rose from the dead, you're forgiven if you trust him. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you're set free from the guilt, from the shame, from the death. Paul goes on and says, then the dead are still dead. The people who believed on Christ before and are now dead, well, they're they're still pushing up daisies. There was no reason for them to believe on Christ. But Paul says elsewhere, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, present with the Lord. The resurrection leads to our freedom to be with God. Finally, Paul says Christians are most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, if we have hope only in this life, we are most to be pitied. (laughs) Paul essentially says at least other belief systems have some view of eternity. But if Jesus did not raise from the dead, there's no eternity to look forward to. There's nothing there. So we are most to be pitied. Listen, Christian, the resurrection affects how we live today because it also informs us of what is to come. It's what we even celebrate in communion, that someday we're going to be in the kingdom with our Father, with our Lord, our triune God. We will be with him because Jesus has accomplished everything. I think I I can turn on the TV and listen to some preachers at times where they, they always focus on this life. You know, a book written, your best life now. Listen, if this is my best life now, I don't want heaven. You get that? There is a better life to come, free from sin, free, free to worship God forever. And that should inform how we live today. The Apostle John says, those who hope in him purify themselves, even as he is pure. Those who look forward to what's to come, live a life desiring to honor him today. These are serious claims for Paul to make. And Paul says it's all because of the resurrection. It affirms what happened in the cross and leads to an eternity future of hope. I hope you believe it. But I do want to just read a few more verses in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 22, Paul says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, Then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now go to verse 42. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. As a seed goes into the ground and dies and transforms into something greater than that seed, so it is for those who trust in Christ. Some of the glorious blessings that Paul brings out here is we will rise with a glorious new body like Jesus' body. The future kingdom will come. God reigns forever. Jesus rules today to, to, to subdue his enemy. Death dies. Each of these claims counter the concerns that he has and what I've already stated. Paul is writing this to help keep the big storyline of the Bible in our minds. That in the beginning, Adam and Eve rebelled against the creator, God. They thought, we will be like God. And we will rule in the ways that we think is best. And then God punished them, plummeting them into brokenness and sin. Every human being has followed suit with Adam and Eve. Except for Jesus, because he is the divine son come in the flesh. And Jesus obeyed the father perfectly. And Jesus followed the father in this life. And then Jesus decided to take the punishment of all the people who are in Adam on himself. And then he promises to grant his righteousness to all who would trust in him. And then Jesus says, someday I'm coming again. And I'm going to bring a kingdom and it's better than Eden. It's a new heaven and a new earth. And God will actually dwell with the people in this land. And we will reign with him for all eternity future. Listen, this happens because of what Jesus did on the cross. This happens because Jesus rose from the dead. And we have hope that for all eternity future, if you've trusted in Christ, you will be with him for all eternity future. Praise God. Our freedom is dependent on Christ. And while in one sense, it's an unbelievable story, God has given us evidences. God's given us proofs to say, it's real. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, it really is the worst April Fool's joke. But if Jesus did raise from the dead, it's all gloriously true. And it is gloriously true. We should praise God for the resurrection. Forgiveness, life, freedom, eternal hope given through Christ. So, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray. Father, thank you. I thank you, God, for this sermon that even bolsters and strengthens my faith. And I pray it's done so for your children here in this room. Father, I pray that we would not just believe that it's factual, but that we would entrust our whole selves to you because of it. What an amazing love that the eternal God would suffer and the eternal God would want us to know him. We who are sinners now have been made right with you. Oh God, let us rejoice in this all the more. And I pray for those in this room who don't trust Christ, that their eyes would be open and they would be enthralled and amazed with Jesus and they would turn to him and trust him. To your name belongs all the glory, God. It's because of Jesus we are able to see and savor your glory. Amen.